Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of SolarPunk. Today, we're really excited to have Martin Gurry on the show. Martin is a former CIA analyst specializing in the relationship between politics and global media. His book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, first published in 2014 and then updated in 2018, has been praised for foreshadowing the political shocks of Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump. Martin has published many articles, studies, and opinion pieces on geopolitical and media-related topics. His blog, The Fifth Wave, pursue the themes first elaborated in his book, The Revolt of the Public. Martin, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Lucas. So Martin, today we're really excited to talk to you about the past, the present, and the future of the thesis and the framework that you first elaborated in The Revolt of the Public. To help level set the conversation a little bit, especially for for people in the audience that haven't read the book, could you give a a brief overview of what you were observing back at CIA in the years leading up to you writing your book. Sure. Basically, I was in the least sexy corner of CIA. Nobody's ever made a movie. I think that's not even true. There's a, there's a Robert Redford movie that's sort of the outfit that I was at, but that, that's, a, that's an outlier. It's not, it's not like James Bond where I was at. We basically analyzed global media uh, it was probably the most pro- deep and wide translation bureau in the world at the moment, probably still is. Uh, so I had access to any media, not just the ones that I could actually read with my own languages, but any any language, it, um, Arabic, Mandarin, any language. And um, the, the trajectory is as follows. To begin with, the job was very fascinating. I mean, who doesn't love to be get paid for reading newspapers and such, right? But fairly straightforward. The, the amount of open information in the world way back when I was a young analyst was a trickle, a trickle. And then fairly suddenly things went haywire. Uh, I guess you could say an earthquake epicentered somewhere near Palo Alto. I don't know, somewhere around there, uh, generated this tsunami of digital information that is unprecedented in human experience. And, and those aren't just words. There's a study done by, some uh, really smart researchers at U Berkeley that worked out the total amount of information in the world through the ages. And they came up with uh, the fact that in the year 2001, the amount of information produced doubled, doubled that of all previous history. Um, 2002 doubled 2001. That trend has more or less continued. If If you chart it, it really does look like a tsunami. It's a, it's a, like a gigantic wave. So there we were. I mean, we were used to, we knew what newspapers to go to when the, if the president wanted to know how is my policy playing in France? Well, there's two newspapers you went to, right? There was like, it was an easy call. Suddenly you're flooded with information. What does it mean? Who's authoritative? That was very important to us. Uh, it, it, before this happened, which are the authoritative uh, sources. Who's authoritative? Who are these people? Who knows, right? So we've also observed, it was just not just me, but but um, 
quite a number of us in, in this little corner of CIA, that as a tsunami rolled over the world, that is, as, as different nations uh, and regions digitized at different rates, you could see this turning, churning of um, sociopolitical instability behind it. Uh, so I know it sounds naive now, but to us, it was, it was a question. What does this means of communication, you know, the internet, have to do with politics? Right? Why is there so much turbulence happening behind that? And it was all related to the internet. It was all people who were organizing, who were, who were basically um, uh, opposing sometimes uh, authoritarian governments online in ways that we had never seen before, with voices we had never heard before, totally new. When I left uh, the government, that question was still hanging. Why should a means of communication cause such sociopolitical turbulence? And my book was an attempt to answer that question, all right? Um, and we can go into what, what that framework is of the book. But essentially, the, the, the beginnings, the origin story is the encounter of several of us with this wave of information. It's the quantity is what's important. People talk about social media to be blamed for everything. It's not social media to blame. That's just one piece of it. It's the amount of information. Uh, the institutions and, and our minds are not built to deal with that number. Like I said, my attempt to understand that is what led to the revolt of the public. So Martin, tell us a like I fascinating background on kind of that the change in the amount of information flow. Can you almost bring us and all of our listeners into the mindset of exactly how did you handle that? It was this influx of all this new information. It's unclear who the true authors of the sources is. Were were you and your teams just overwhelmed in the moment and then had to adapt? Was it were you able to be flexible and bring all that together? How, how did you react? when well, all of this information is sort of flowing in? I mean, basically it was a prolonged scream, right? I mean, it was, we, we um, you know, for example, just to cite an example of the kind of things that, that, that would occur. Um, if you knew the Egyptian media, say from the 80s to the year 2000 and probably before then, it was the most boring. First of all, it's hardly any of it, and hardly any television of any kind. And what there was for the few thousand television sets in Egypt was all Mubarak all the time. So if you want lots and lots of Mubarak, you bought yourself a television set. Most people, fortunately for them, couldn't afford one. The printed media was just, to call it dry and boring and pointless, you know, there was like a couple of what they called opposition, the approved opposition newspapers. So they would almost ritually complain about something that they were allowed to complain about. No humor whatsoever. It was the driest dust, no humor. And suddenly, online, in English, because at that time, blogs uh, couldn't handle um, Arabic scripts. So these were people who were uh, obviously well-educated enough to be able to be semi-fluent in, 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 the, in English. All of a sudden, these blogs erupt. And they're, number one, hilarious. I mean, hilarious. You, you roll over laughter, hilarious. And number two, they all of them oppose Mubarak. They oppose Mubarak in the most hilarious ways. I mean, they make fun, they poke fun of him. They, they, they find him ridiculous, right? Number three, these are people who very clearly, from what I said, belonged to the inside insider group, right? So there was like these were not like the masses from below. These were obviously people who were college educated, possibly in either England or the United States. Certainly had learned English, which set them apart from the vast majority of, of Egyptians. So there was a big eruption of that, 
And we looked at that and we said, so what does that mean? It means something. You can't, you can't allow a voice like that to resonate and it has no effect. What is the effect? Well, we couldn't really say. And I have to tell you, you know, CIA is a, it's a place that is, people are very dedicated, very brilliant, very courageous, but it's a bureaucracy in the end, right? And so we would basically be told, so these people are blogging. Suppose the secret police came and knocked on their door. What are they going to do? Hit them with their laptops? That was the joke, right? So we went, ha, ha. And, and, and basically, uh, if you said, how did we cope? We really didn't at that time. We did not. Uh, institutional CIA was having, you know, essentially was, um, they threw a lot of money at it. That, that was good for me because CIA had been criticized for not using open sources enough during the um, the, com- the two commissions for um, uh, weapons of mass destruction and 9-11. Both said you need you need to to um, to do more open source, more media. So they do what bureaucracy did. They threw more money. But I don't think the methods changed much. I don't think they quite understood that this was not a question of needing more, process more. This was a categorical difference. We had to be different. We couldn't be, you know, before we literally could suck all the media of the world that was of interest, all of it. It wasn't that much, right? Now we were completely, we didn't know whether we were even capturing, what portion we were capturing. It's like, it was an, an infinite amount for all practical purposes. And how do you, how can you tell? Why do you concentrate on one part and not the other? And of course, you know, this was the beginning. By the end, the president, who is the the customer, the only customer of CIA, really, would himself say, well, you guys say this. But, you know, I just read online over here the exact opposite. And see, a truly, a truly analytical approach to what was going on would have been to analyze map out and analyze the geography of the online world. So you could tell then our customer, no, well, this is this kind of a thing. That's that kind of a thing. The reason we came to a different conclusion, is, but but it always caught us flat, flat-footed because basically we're still, it's a, we were in a 20th century models. And, and uh, that's true of the entire, not just the US government, that every government in the world today essentially is functioning on 20th century structure. And each one of them in different ways is getting battered by this wave. And Martin, perhaps one of the biggest changes that we've witnessed in the last 10 to 15 years is that back then, everybody talked about controlling information in the context of authoritarian governments. And now that seems to be one of the hottest conversations that we have here in America, right? Like Bill Clinton said, referring to China, that controlling the internet was trying to nail jello to the wall. You talked about in your book uh, how a decade ago, the US celebrated the the poorly named uh, era spring thinking that the boom of information would lead to a defeat of authoritarianism in the, in the, in the region, in the whole world. And in reality, what we've seen is actually the rise of public unrest also here in America itself. There is a quote that you have uh, that I think is really interesting for us to, to talk about is in the, in the book, uh, uncertainty is acid, corrosive to authority. And once the monopoly on information is lost, so too is our trust. Um, so my question to you is, you know, given all that we've seen, is your view today that the new technologies in this new information age create just as many challenges for democratic countries as it does for authoritarian regimes? Yeah, it's a challenge to authority, not to democracy, not to dictatorship, but to authority. Anybody who claims authority, and both those 
systems that Chinese claim authority and the U.S. government claims authority, and they're on very different basis. Um, both of them are threatened by this. All right, both of them are threatened by this. Uh, Hosni Mubarak, an extreme example. He was a very, very old man, had no freaking clue what what he was facing. Right, um, so he thought he could just push a button. I call it the Mubarak switch. It's the ultimate dream of the elites is to push uh, that 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 pull that that Mubarak switch where the internet goes off and it's dead, right? And somehow you have silenced your, your opponents. But in fact, that tidal wave of information is not just even the web. There, it, there are, you know, for example, the, the, uh, satellite TV channels. It, it's massively redundant and totally outside the control of any given country or any given state. Uh, so he went down uh, within three, he had been a dictator for 30 years. Within three weeks, he was gone. With current world conflicts, right, with Russia, Ukraine, and everything that's going on there, how do you see the vast amount of information coming out of both sides trying to control perception both globally, but then within uh, in Russia's case, within its own country, at least, um, having evolved from uh, that situation years ago? And how do you see that evolving in the future? Yeah, the question of how Putin is maintaining his information control is an interesting one. And I can't really answer that. I haven't really delved into that very much, but it's a really interesting question. And I think it's happening much more than we realize. And I think there's actually some pretty deep support for that war in, in Russia, because you can't really be persuaded into something you don't already believe, but you can just simply have a big chunk of reality omitted from your field of vision. If you don't see it, you don't know it's there, right? Now, the big information story out of that war, though, is the amazing performance that Zelensky and the Ukrainians have put, where honestly, within, I say a day of, of that invasion, he had, he had become like the next big thing. He had become like the next COVID, you know, COVID, you could only speak about COVID in, in, in like, like in a scream and it was all bad and all terrible. This was a different, but everybody kind of swung. You can't talk about anything else. You got to talk about the Ukraine. You got to, you know, you got to throw poor, you know, Russian ballerinas out of the theater because they're Russian and, and you're going to do all these things. Uh, and I mean, I, it, it shows you a couple of things. Um, the Russians had all the big battalions and the high-tech weapons and even their fingers on the nuclear bomb. You know, the, the Ukrainians had Zelensky and, and, uh, um, and the smartphone, and it's been no contest. <laughs> the Ukrainians are winning. Um, I, I am not sure. If you look at the record of the West, including, alas, our own country, in dealing with Putin aggressions, we tend to give these very sanctimonious condemnations saying things like, um, you know, you, you've, you're now stuck in a quagmire or you, you are on the wrong side of history. And then we kind of slap their wrist and then we move on uh, without really having changed the situation on the ground at all. I think that information campaign stampeded the electorates, the public in all the democratic countries in favor of Ukraine. And we have a very weak elite leadership class. When the public stampedes, they head in that direction and they stampede as much as, as everybody else. So I think the amount of support that that um, that the Ukrainians have gotten is directly proportional to how brilliant that information campaign was that they have waged. 
And and secondly, I think the importance of individuals. If it had been somebody other than Zelensky, who the hell knows? I, I think that's um, a great point. And you know, I, I'm very curious in in kind of looking at your book and how you updated it um, after uh, Trump was elected. You know, look, we have the uh, the Russia attacking Ukraine. We've had COVID. We've had all of these mass situations that honestly, I think a lot of us never would have um, expected. If you were to write another update for your book today, knowing everything that you know, how would you analyze where we stand relative to several years ago? Yeah, I think from 2010 and before even to around 2016 through 2020, it was a massive action. It was the public taking advantage of these uh, platforms and protesting in many, many, I mean, every continent, many, many times, many, many places, from Chile to Bolivia, to Sudan, to Algeria, to Lebanon, to Iraq. I mean, Hong Kong, You, I mean, endless, endless numbers of times using the same methodology, more or less displaying the same characteristics. And every time the same surprise and startlement by the elites, they would always go, who are these people? They don't exist in our world. They have no institution that they're attached to. They have no parties. You know, they're not part of, they're not like um, trade unions or something like that. They're the usual protesters, the usual, the usual suspects in the protesting world, these are not them. Who are they? Well, I think with, with the election of Trump and Brexit, the elites woke up that something weird was happening and that they needed, they needed to react, all right? So that we have 10, 15 years of action and I think we are now deep in what I would call the reaction, the reactionary moment. In other words, how do we undo all those things that have been done? And by very interesting devices, such as deploying the identity, you know, the cult of identity, saying to people, you're not allowed to say this. You're forbidden from using th these words. You're forbidden from having this opinion because it's racist. Uh, and you may lose your job or you may be you know, attacked by a, an internet mob, or there are many, many, many uh, penalties that follow if you if you violate my my uh, my rule, and so you have a strange, strange um, alliance of ruling elites from the Democratic Party to, to begin. With. If you look at our institutions, they're pretty much you know ruled from that side of the house. So you have ruling elites who want to counteract. The power of the web, the power, the the the, the bottom-up power of of uh, the digital tsunami, and these very ferocious identity people who are much younger and 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 much less much more disruptive, but can be used as attack dogs to support the reaction. So I would call it a reactionary moment that's trying to push against that tsunami. I don't think it's possible. I think they're going to get swept away. What, what do you think happens from here, Martin? Is it is it the revolt of the revolt? Uh, you know, are we going to see new new elites that that know how to use that information flow better? Um, you don't seem, from what you're saying, you don't seem to be very optimistic that there is any chance that this reactionary moment is actually going to to, to win. Well, I, I, let me just put it this way: I'm hoping that it isn't. I don't think it can. I mean, I think the the chief objective of the reactionary moment is getting going back to the 20th century. And until somebody comes up with a gigantic time machine, um, it's just not possible. So 
I mean, you look at the pres- uh, the person of Joe Biden, you know, 79 years old, um, uh, spent most of his life in the 20th century, probably wouldn't know what the heck to do with a with a, a, a smartphone. You're, you're dealing with a, uh, a, almost the, uh, the 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 tide of nature, uh, the, the mortality of of the human race will take care of this. You cannot keep it up. There will not be a reaction in that sense. So. Am I pessimistic? Am I optimistic? I try to be, I, I try to not think in those terms. I mean, those are when I think in those terms, I'm being different than an analyst, right? Because I'm projecting my values because you can't say optimistic or pessimistic without projecting some sort of standard that you can measure from. But I, I do believe that we are in the middle of a cosmic transformation, cosmic. It's going to change every institution in ways that, I certainly can't predict, and we are in the very early stages of that. So I, it, I would say it's even too early to be optimistic or pessimistic. Uh, and I always throw in the story that my friend Antonio Garcia Martinez, who's one of the sharpest people I know, tells about um, what if you went back to the Thirty Years' War? I don't know if you guys know about the Thirty Years' War, but it was possibly the worst war ever in Europe, including World War II, probably a third of the population of the continent died in that war. It was all about religion. And it was all about because the printing presses had put books, uh, had allowed people to become literate and have put you know, prayer books in people's hands. And your prayer books had about 10 words that were not in mind. And now you had to die, right? You had to die for that. And But then my prayer book had too many words for the other person over here. I had to die because of that. If you had come back, to the Thirty Years' War and interviewed the man on the street and said, what do you think of the printing press? That person would have said, it's the most horrible, you know, conflict-inducing, you know, catastrophic invention that has ever been produced. Break it up, destroy it, throw it away. Um, well, today, in, in, in the hindsight of history, we know that it was, you know, the printing press was probably the most liberating invention that ever happened. I mean, you wouldn't have had a scientific revolution without it. You wouldn't have had a French revolution without it. You wouldn't have had a, an American revolution without it. Uh, democracy would not have triumphed without it. But it took 150 years for the human race to figure out what to do with it. So we're just at the beginnings, the beginnings. And I think history moves faster, so it probably won't be 150 years. But it, I would love to see the end of this one. And Martin, we're, we're talking a lot about, and even in your book, like you mentioned, how all of these things create challenges within the countries itself for authority. But how do you think that the revolt of the public relates to geopolitics? And, and what's your evaluation that this crisis of, of what this crisis of authority has done to the West's global power and its ability to lead the world order? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I, I don't have a really, really good answer to it. I think, number one, as I said before, it's a challenge to every form of authority. All right. It impacts the democratic West, the communist Chinese regime, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, Vladimir Putin in Russia. Equal impact. All right. Equal impact. So I think, however, the West is more open to new things more open to uh, bottom-up 
uh, effervescence, let's say, that we, we tend to think that that's a good thing that when, when the public uh, is trying to, to promote its own opinions and, and try to dispute with, with the, you know, the people who have power uh, on behalf of those who have not. So, so I think the effect has been more powerfully felt in, in the West. And I mean, the, the, the destruction, the battering that our institutions have taken has been pretty severe. So I think probably on the immediate moment of this, like I said, very early stages of this cosmic transformation, uh, the West has been taken down. The democracies have been taken down. The United States, let's call it out, has been taken down several pegs. And everybody looks to the Chinese and thinks, why couldn't we do it like that? Right? Everybody looks at Putin and thinks, boy, that man is in charge. Right? And everybody looks at Biden or Trump or even Obama. And they go, well, these guys are just kind of floating around and can't get anything done. So I think this, you know, we, the democracies, but we, the U.S. also, are, are, it's more visible with us that there is a huge gap between our, our elite class and the realities of the world. I mean, I was thinking about the people who were confronting Putin, and you're talking about you know, um, the new German chancellor, I think his name is Schultz or something like that, uh, Macron in, in France, Johnson in Britain, Biden here. I mean, the, the, this is a very lightweight crowd, right? This is a very lightweight crowd. Um, so I think we, the, the, the division between the kind of person that our structures have called for in the past and, and the kind of people we need to deal with the, the, the changed circumstances is way more apparent in the West. Now, that could be a hopeful thing. It could be that because we are more open and we, we take the battering quicker, we will come to some arrangement where our elite class is such that it, can, it understands the new information um, dispensation. It understands how to talk, how to act, how to, you know, it knows that it can't hide at the top of the pyramid anymore. All your little sex perversions are going to come out whether you want to or not. You know, you, you don't have that, that, uh, that, that privilege that a person like John F. Kennedy had, whose private life was completely concealed from the public out of some sort of you know, media discretion. It's the opposite now. Whatever you do that's weird is going to be viral in seconds. And you're going to have a class that understands that and it's going to have to behave accordingly. So that's the hope. So when you look at kind of this difference in mindset between these Western leaders and um, other leaders in the world, um, do you think that leaves the U.S. and other Western countries vulnerable to the rise of a new world power where it's no longer kind of the U.S. leading the charge? Yeah, you know, sure. That, ha- that, ca- that happens all the time in history. Somebody else comes along. The Chinese have made amazing strides in the last 20, 30 years. And I don't mean necessarily even in power, which is so, but in bringing hundreds of millions of people out of what had been eternal poverty. These people had been mired in their rice paddies, you know, their little, their little huts and their little patches of land for 3,000 years. And suddenly they're entrepreneurs and they're building TikTok and they're they're up there competing with the best, right? So no question that you can't deny the rise of China. I 
I'm not an American imperialist. I mean, I love this country and I think we're absolutely a force for good uh, as a whole, not necessarily in every given instance, but as a whole. But I don't think being the supreme power matters so much as getting this right. I think in the end, all the democracies, if we get this right, if we get if we get the transition of elites from people who are fighting the future to people who are engaged getting us there, it doesn't really matter what the Chinese are going to do because they are the ultimate example of the 20th century. All right, they're like the 20th century uh, gone digital. They're, 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 they they are moved all the techn- all the techniques of the 20th century into the digital world and. I personally don't think that has a future. And Martin, so we covered recently this Chinese Communist Party paper called uh, Unrestricted Warfare. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with it, but basically no. mentions how the, the, Western, the Western mind sees war as a very black and white thing. It's you either you fight, you lose, you, you win or you lose. And, you know, it essentially talks about how it can ex- the East can explore that cognitive dissonance by fighting ways that the West is not really prepared for. And, you know, I've, I've recently seen you talk about how you think that the Western mind don't really understand the meaning of propaganda. And, and that actually reminded me of that paper. Uh, I was curious if you could expand on that. Yeah, I haven't read the paper, so I'm speaking in ignorance for that. I, I think the first thing you have to understand when you talk about information is that all information is a form of propaganda. There is no neutral information. All You would not bring something to someone's attention unless you thought something was going to happen, whether that is, oh, you and I are going to have a laugh because it's a funny meme, I mean, or you are going to look at this information and thought and think, oh my goodness, you know, we've, we've, we've solved the, the problem of fusion energy, or it could be any number of things that seem very dry, but it's always propaganda. Information is always persuasion, okay? So actual propaganda is a tiny little trickle inside that. So if you have a system that is fairly repugnant and it's visibly so from a distance and it's trying to somehow plant information over here that it's, it's, it's um, either that it reflects well on, on its own uh, activities or that it confuses our activities, the amount of damage that can be done is is minimal. What matters is the whole information set. You you can confuse a few people, you know, you can be was it Lincoln that said you can fool the people some of the time, but not, you know, you can you cannot fool everybody. So I think I am not a big believer in propaganda uh in the sense that I don't believe it works. Uh and and um I think what promotes the West is not its propaganda is that huge set of information about the West we're generating all the time. And I mean, if you ever go, for example, outside the United States to, I mean, I, I, I spent two years in the nineties uh, working for the embassy in, in uh, Asuncion, Paraguay, right? I mean, the United States was this golden ideal, okay? The things that came there, I mean, they literally had secondhand American clothes, stores that sold that because they were so cool, right? Um, so the set of information, the whole set, the, the culture, the entertainment, the politics, of course, the freedom, of course, that Americans don't realize that because we're born in it. I was not born in the United States of America. I was born in Cuba. So... Basically, most Americans take it for granted and behave in certain ways 
that a lot of people in the world, even in the other democracies, go, wow, that's an American. Only an American would say that, right? Because things are so free and easy here, so secure here. In, in Europe, of course, they're, they're very democratic, they're very free, but they have hundreds of years of struggle and misery, not only between each other, but within the classes. So there's a whole lot of things that are not taken for granted that we as Americans don't even think about, okay? So that's the information set. That's, that's what gets projected outward. The propaganda of who we are is far more powerful than any little propaganda that they can send over here and, and try to confuse us with, in my opinion. So given all of this, what keeps you up at night? What, what are you stressed about for the future of the world? Or given everything you've seen and everything you've experienced, do you just you, you feel like you understand how it's playing out and the world is what the world is? Yeah, I, I have never understood a thing, all right? And I have always said, you know, I get a lot of credit for having predicted this and predicted that. And if you go to my book, on the very first page, it says, I don't do predictions. <laughs> I have never done predictions. You want to be wrong? Make a prediction, okay? So, and I sleep well at nights. I sleep well at nights. I mean, in the end, I mean, there are many things that could go wrong, and I'm not a, a, a I don't play the glad game. But in the end, you kind of make an act of faith. We, we're the American people are going through a psychotic moment right now. You'd be foolish to deny that. And if this is a permanent condition, the democracy is in deep trouble. You cannot you cannot maintain a democracy under psychotic conditions. It just can't be done. So, um, but I don't believe it's going to be permanent. I have, I, as you can see, I am not a young man. So I, I have experience that precedes both of you guys. And I know, and I, or at least I feel as an act of faith, that that common sense and that, that sort of um, practical nature that has always been at the heart of the American people hasn't gone away. It's just a moment. So I, I sleep well. I sleep well. I think democracy is going to survive. I, act of faith, not a prediction. Um, but it's going to be very different from what it is today. But then again, the democracy we have today was, is... Do you think Thomas Jefferson would even recognize it? He would go, what the heck is that? You know. So we have changed our democracy many times to adjust it to the stresses of the moment. All we have to do that is do that reconfiguration work again. So Martin, to dive deeper on that psychotic moment that you mentioned, so, something that Ian and I have talked a lot about in this podcast is this overall uh, rise of nihilism that we see in America and Western society broadly. I'd be curious if you could dive deeper into how do you see the intersection and the connection between this crisis of authority and the rise of nihilism in the West? And, you know, is it fair to say that because people no longer believe the stories that media and the, and the authorities are, are telling them, they now just question everything more than ever before? Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. One flows from the other. I think the, the institutions rest on certain stories, as you say, certain narratives that grant them legitimacy. And back in the 20th century, when I was a young analyst at CIA, before all of this craziness happened, nobody would have questioned the legitimacy of American institutions. It was just taken for granted. You just want them to do certain things, go this way or go that way, but that they had the right to do it, given that, say, a president had been elected and a Congress had been elected and so forth. Nobody would question that. I think when you when information 
uh, overflows as it has now and batters an institution that is uh, built on a limited set of information. When people who are in authority say things that are constantly being proven to be either silly or wrong or um, misjudgments or mispredictions again, uh, and every time they do so, there are millions online that swarm around them and say, ha, you know, you've messed up again. And and every um, act of privilege and self-interest is magnified. And, and unfortunately, that's where we our, our, our elite class, you know, lets us down is that they, they, you can see them and they don't think that we can see them because they think they're hidden at the top of the pyramid. But the world today is a transparent world. You can see everything they're doing. And so it looks and is very self-serving for them. I mean, they all wind up being politicians that get, you know, if you live in Washington, you know how much they make relative to, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, it's peanuts. And yet by the time they're retired, they're all millionaires. How does that happen, right? How does that happen? I mean, it, it, uh, it, it tends to make people very cynical, very angry. The distance between the top and the bottom of the pyramid is too high, given that we all live on the internet where it's flat. And I think you get this anger amongst the public, which, because the public is very divided, can't agree on a solution or an alternative, something that is different from what stands for now, because we are so fractured. Part of what the, the, the tsunami has done is just fractured us along our actual opinions that we have always had, that we in the past sort of got glommed into great mass organizations. Now we are very fractured. So if, if we are all angry at, at the established order, but we all say, this is what I want to do about it, then everybody else would get angry with us. So that doesn't work. So it's all negation. It's all against. And when you are against and you are trying, are you battering away at the institutions uh, and you don't propose an alternative, that's my definition of nihilism. In other words, you are destroying without proposing anything in, in, the, in the place of the thing you have destroyed. Uh, so it's a structural thing. It has to do with the fact that we are fractured and the fact that in, in the online world, um, that's evident and obvious. So the only thing that can um, bind us together in a, in a motivated and, and mobilized way is that 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 negation, that anger at the establishment. So all you focus in is that anger and you mobilize it and then you have you know, Black Lives Matter burning down a police station or a bunch of QAnon crazies you know, with horns and painted blue trooping through the Capitol building because you know they feel like the, the, the elections have been stolen from them. So there's a direct connection. The main task of authority, people always think it's, it's power, but power and authority are very different. Power is, is what, I, what I have when I have a gun. Authority is my ability to have you do what I want without a gun, because you think he's the person that tells me about how to do this, right? And you, you don't have that anymore. You do not have that anymore. Uh, so what, what you have is an, a complete erosion. When people will, will follow you, you as an authority because they think you know, but it's evident that a relief class doesn't have a freaking clue. I mean, in this regard, I think I don't even think that's that's an opinion. I think that's that's they're they're grasping at straws, uh, and they themselves are like the Trump are playing the game of us against them, and let's you know troll the web, and then the, the, you fight the trolls that are coming after me, and I you know so you have this this uh, 
very trivial game being performed at a very angry level, though, a very dangerously angry level. Um, and, and honestly, when, you, when I speak about the nihilist, I often think about these people like that person that just walked into the subway in Brooklyn recently and started shooting individuals he had never met before. He had no grudge against these people. Okay. He had, they weren't his enemies. They hadn't stood in his way. They weren't even class enemies that he knew of because he had no idea who they were. He walked into a subway train and started shooting. And when you look at what he's been doing online and on YouTube, he was a very angry person. He was angry at the mayor of New York for this, angry about politics here. So he is the internet rant become the flesh. That's the nihilist. It's the rant become the flesh. I mean, people wonder why it happens. The amazing thing is it doesn't happen more often. The, the things that they say online, these shooters, and they constantly write things online, are no different. No different. They're just not any more vicious, more disgusting. Sometimes they're actually more rational uh, sounding than your average internet back and forth, which is always crazy and usually ends with death threats or rape threats or God knows what, right? So most of the times on the web, nothing happens. In fact, I have never heard of a case where something happened. But sometimes in that environment, somebody decides, no, I'm going to now cross that line, that magic line between the virtual and the real. And my rant is going to be a gun in my hand. And the first person I encounter somehow or another, for no particular reason, is going to pay for my anger. So, Martin, you know, may, maybe those local terrorists are some very extreme version uh, of, of, of that nihilist. In, in your mind, is there a connection uh, between, you know, even like people having fewer kids, fewer families, uh, you know, less religion? Is that always, sorry, is that also a form of, of nihilism in, in your perspective? No, no, I don't think that's a form of nihilism. I think that's a, uh, the connection there is, is uncertain, all right? I personally believe there is a connection, but as an analyst, I have to tell you, it's a hard one to prove empirically. Um, I, I think um, if I were to make a, a speculative guess, I mean, I really want to be careful about this because you, know, you have to look at the evidence. If I were to make a speculative guess, I think if you have fewer family, no religion, since everybody has fewer families, the number of friends, you know, the cohorts are smaller, and you're caught up in this internet world, therefore, everything is magnified. Everything is enormous. If you have a religion, that kind of, you, you put in a cosmic perspective, whatever anger you may feel at Trump or Biden or whatever, you go, well, you know, there is a God who's a sub above all these people. Uh, and, and that can bring you down. If you have a family, you know, that, that, that come from a very large Cuban family, and that's great. You know, it's like you just kind of, it's like a, it releases the stress. You, you sit there and you yell at them and they yell at you and, and it's great, okay? If you're on your own and, and you have no sense of what's right or what's wrong, what's the meaning of it all, all human beings were born with a, a profound craving, as profound as, as our, our craving for food and, and, and uh and uh, mates uh, is the craving for meaning, craving for meaning. And if you, your family doesn't give it to you, your community doesn't give it to you, your religion doesn't give it to you, you're going to go out in the streets. And, and, and when you see a lot of these um, protesters, they're in a kind of a, an ecstatic high almost. 
They are they're transcending the meaninglessness of their lives. And for a little moment, you you they get interviewed. They're all over YouTube. Fascinating interviews. They're all almost all of them, including Black Lives Matter, white middle class kids. Okay, uh, and they and they're almost all of them. Their idea is they don't have a a new ideology like the Marxists would have brought. They are they are kind of like modeling a new morality. They're they're pretending that you know they're they're in some enclave that has been declared you know occupied or whatever, and they're they're modeling this new morality and they're telling you, look, they bring us food for free and everybody here loves everybody else and we're showing how it can be. Then of course it disintegrates into chaos and 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 it goes away, but. I think it's that profound hunger for meaning that drives those people to the streets and that makes them so angry at the institutions because in the end, it's politics. And if there's one place that you're never going to find meaning, <laughs> it's in politics. So they're looking for love in all the wrong places. It's just not going to work. And Martin, to, to wrap up this topic of, of you know, the, the overall nihilism and this sense of decline um, in, in the West, um, you wrote recently about what you defined as the identity cult. Um, I'd be curious if you could share with the audience what you mean by that. And how do you think that relates with the, you know, this, this idea of people's struggle to finding meaning? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it is. It's an attempt to find meaning. I, you know, essentially, this thing has happened sometime uh, with that wave of uh, with George Floyd and his death, and then the wave of disturbances that followed, the entire institutional set of the United States of America moved over to extreme identity uh, politics, right? To the point where, you know, my, my old football team, the Washington Redskins, couldn't be the Redskins anymore. The Cleveland Indians couldn't be the Cleveland Indians anymore. Uh, every, every aspect of society is, um, is policed by the people who believe that, number one, and I mean, it's a, it's a, if you read Wesley Yang, he's probably the one that has captured this uh, with, with, with um, the most insight. Um, this, this is a coherent proposition. They want outcomes to be more or less identical, all right? In other words, the idea that we are equal citizens and then that therefore everything depends on our efforts and so forth. And of course you can have unequal outcomes. That is, that is taboo. You have to have equal outcomes. And so therefore you should not treat us as independent citizens, as actual per, you know, separate citizens. You should treat us as groups. And, and therefore programs, for example, government money should not be dispensed you know, according to my personal condition, but according to what group I belong to. And that's happening. That's happening a lot, all right? Um, it probably goes against the thrust of the American uh, uh, American way of thinking, certainly against Jeffersonian democracy, certainly against what I consider to be the, our constitutional model, but it's happening a lot, right? And I I, I think the, the, the main... Uh, impact that it's had is that it's produced a class of grand inquisitors, you know, online inquisitors that are willing to shut you up, get you fired, or or at least silence you in some way, get the the great digital platforms to silence you. You know, the whole idea of that, that, um, the theory that there's a lab leak 
in in uh, Wuhan that might have created, you know, might, might have spilled out uh, COVID nineteen, um, because Trump said it, and Trump, of course, is like the beast of the apocalypse of the elites. All right, um, but Trump said it. That should not ever be allowed to be said again, and it's false and it's, it's disinformation, and. Well, now suddenly Trump gets loses the election, and everybody's saying, "Yeah, that's a, actually a viable theory." All right, the famous Hunter Biden laptop that you know, 50, 50 former intelligence people—that's my crowd, okay—said is Russian disinformation. I mean, if you looked at the thing, there was no way it could have been Russian disinformation. I don't know what they were thinking, but now, of course, we know that it wasn't and that it actually existed. So. There are ways of silencing debate that the identity cult can bring about. And I think that's, that ties up to what I said before about their reaction. I think there's, there's a whole lot of young people who are involved in this identity cult. They're sincere. They're fanatical. I don't like them very much, but they're, you, you can't deny their sincerity, sincerity, right? But I think in a rather cynical way, they're being exploited by the elites who use them now as the attack dogs of reaction. The elites know perfectly well that people laugh at them. Nobody's afraid of the elites. Uh, that's that was a, it was a rude awakening with Trump. But I think between Trump and Brexit, they suddenly realized, you know, when we when we kind of get angry and huff and puff, they laugh at us now, right? Well, nobody laughs at these identity kids because they're ferocious, all right? They come after you. They 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 in a way they rule the web. So there's a very cynical exploitation of that of that cult, which is a very negative thing. I, I believe the, the cult is, and it's very uh, destructive in many ways. Uh, and self-contradictory in many ways, but these are people who are lo- longing for meaning, for truth. The way that the the people who who uh, belong to to this ideas, uh, they speak about it as why, why can't we speak truth? It never occurs to them that somebody can listen to them and say, no, I, that's not truth. That's your opinion. You know that if you say that, sorry, you are now in the racist category and you're in big trouble. So these are very handy young people who are being exploited by cynical elites to serve as essentially the attack dogs of their reaction. It's a temporary, it's a temporary alliance. They hate each other, <laughs> right? They hate each other. So it, it can't last, but it's an interesting development. So uh, given all of that, let's say you're in charge and we could define in charge by however you think it's most effective. You're president of the US, you're in some other role. How do you help alleviate a lot of this tension in this conflict? Or do you, right? I think to your point earlier, you can't dismantle the printing press. You can't dismantle the internet. What do you do to move us towards more productive outputs versus a lot of this infighting? Well, the first thing I would say is that I should not be in charge because of my my venerable gray hairs and, and bald head. Uh, they should be in charge. And and I say that I'm looking at you, Joe Biden, who are older than me by quite a spell. All right. So who should be in charge is somebody who understands this world. And by that, I mean somebody who is a Gen Xer or younger. Um, So that's my one would be my preference. But what can a person do to alleviate that situation? And I think, I think there are many structural reasons for it. And no, president or, or anybody in charge can change those. It can start in that direction. I mean, I think if you were to say what needs to be done as a whole, I would say we need to reconfigure the government so the distance between the top and the bottom is much narrower, which is what happens at the internet. But if you just talk about the elites and how they behave, I think the 20th century model 
was very utopian. It believed that if you threw enough money, power, and science at something, you could fix the human condition. So as a politician, you were always solving problems. So there would go something like, like um, you know, the race problem. Like it was a mathematical equation that you could work out and come up with a perfect solution to it. Well, this was a condition, a human condition, a social condition that if you ever have tackled any social condition, they are hard to budge. So we always promised infinitely more that could be developed, that, that could be uh, turned in uh, in the 20th century. But in that information set, that wasn't apparent. You didn't, you didn't see the gap between the promise and the delivery, all right? In this information set, that's all you see. They're talking utopian and we're living in crap. You know? So, and it's only getting worse. As, as, as most people think, I actually don't believe that's true, but many people think this. So if you are an elite, the first thing you have to have is humility. I think you should never say, I can solve this problem. I can solve the problem of equality. Number one, it's not a problem. This is it's not a mathematical equation. Number two, you can help it, but you will probably have all kinds of unintended consequences. Everything that is done um, institutionally has unintended consequences. Those are the ones that, that come back and, and we see. Uh, and half the time, the original intention doesn't even get achieved. So being humble, being saying, let's try the test, you know, trial and error. That's the only way the human race advances trial. We will try. The, the direction we want to go is this. Now, to get there, Let's try this first. If that doesn't work, we'll try something. We'll get there. We'll try and get there, okay? And, you know, don't forget that you're a citizen. Something happens to our politicians. They become kind of like ugly movie stars, you know? They they um, wear different clothes. They use different words. They associate with each other. They stop caring about what the public below is thinking, even though there's this enormous upflow of information they can tap into anytime they want to. Somebody like, like um, Trump and somebody like uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez could do that very well, not necessarily in a healthy way, but they, it's there, it can be done. Uh, most of our elites don't even know how. So I would say, be humble, be honest, be aware that your personal and financial and, and uh, public lives are transparent. Don't think that because you're at the top of the pyramid, you're gonna be protected or hidden. Don't do anything that you wouldn't do in front of a camera. And, and, and anything, anything you say, anywhere, say it as if it's in front of a camera. I, always, I, I um, at one point told, it was a law enforcement group. I said, always act as if you were in front of a camera. And um, that was right before the black, first Black Lives Matter happened where you know people were being uh, photographed doing all kinds of crazy things. Our institutions are not aware of us watching them. They think they're still living in the 20th century where they can do things that, that in the dark. There is very little, there's always hidden things, but less and less in our world. If you're an institutional body, if you're a person in an institution, you should be humble, you should be truthful, you should behave, I mean, as if there's a camera, even when you're your wife or your girlfriend, you know, I mean, you just never know. Don't go to restaurants that are um, uh, super expensive, not wearing masks when um, you're telling everybody that they're, it's a demand, that government demand that they should wear a mask. Because you, know, you come across as what you are, 
which is a privileged creep. Uh, and I think that that defines a lot of our elites. And I think, unfortunately, people who run for office, that's what they want to be. They want to be privileged creeps, you know? So, I mean, we need, as a public, to elect different people. Martin, this is an amazing point to end on. I, I love that advice, and I think our listeners will um, uh, find it incredibly valuable. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on Village Global Solar Punk. It's been fun. Thanks for listening. Check us out at villageglobal.vc, where you can find links and other information about today's episode.